My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Dina Teutel and Barry Robinson. Struggles for social and environmental justice happen on all manner of terrains. Sometimes they happen on the land, sometimes they happen in the workplace, sometimes they happen on the streets, and sometimes they happen in the courts. As unfamiliar and even uncomfortable as that last can be to those used to pursuing movement goals by other means, sometimes legal action can be a crucial element of broader campaigns or movements. Given the specialized complex rules that govern the world of legal challenges and hearings and courtrooms, however, it can be crucial to work with experts, with lawyers. And in doing that, it can greatly facilitate things to find lawyers who hold overall goals that are aligned with those of the people engaged on the ground in the struggle in question. Ecojustice is a Canadian national environmental law charity that employs lawyers, scientists, and support staff and that pursues litigation and law reform work as means to improve the environment through law. They're funded through a mix of individual donations and foundation grants, and they take on cases that they feel will maximize their ability to have an impact on the ground and to set precedents that will better protect the environment in the future. The organization started in Vancouver in 1990, and now has offices in Calgary, Ottawa, and Toronto as well. Their work clusters around three main priorities. Climate change, which often includes work around the tar sands and pipelines, wilderness and biodiversity protection, and healthy communities and the right to a healthy environment. Dina Teutel and Barry Robinson are both staff lawyers in the Calgary office of Ecojustice, and as such, much of their work has related to opposing the environmental impacts of the oil and gas industry, including legal work in opposition to many of the major pipelines that are currently the focus of active movement opposition. They speak with me about the organization as a whole, about some of the environmental legal work that they themselves have been involved in, and about the broad outlines of what the law can and cannot be expected to accomplish when it comes to defending the earth. We spoke by Skype to phone from Calgary. My name is Dina Teitel, and I'm a staff lawyer at EcoJustice in the Calgary office. And I'm Barry Robinson, also a staff lawyer in the Calgary office of EcoJustice. EcoJustice is a Canadian national uh, environmental law charity. We've been around for about 26 years. We have lawyers and scientists and support staff, and our objective is to protect and improve the environment through the law. I think that my path to doing this kind of work started with my parents taking me hiking a lot as a kid and spending a lot of time in the forest and at the beach where I grew up in Vancouver, and that gave me an appreciation for the outdoors and for nature and a background for understanding environmental issues as I started to become aware of them. And by the time I was looking at career paths, 
environmental law seemed like a way to combine my interests and the things that I cared about with my skill set. For me, I was born and raised in Toronto, a big city kid, but I knew pretty quickly I wanted to get out of that. So even while in high school, I worked in a forestry area in central Ontario, and then I worked in Banff. But knowing I wanted to do that, I then did a forestry degree as well as an environmental studies degree. But my pathway to law was a little convoluted. I worked in the forest industry for about 10 years in northern Alberta. But there I was always doing the environmental management side of the forestry business things like watershed monitoring and species at risk planning, particularly for caribou and that sort of thing. Then I did environmental consulting for about 15 years. We did a lot of work in waste management and waste reduction, but we also did environmental auditing in the forest industry. And it was really through that work, the environmental auditing work, that I I recognized that the law could be a useful tool in terms of ensuring compliance with the law. So I decided to go back and do a law degree. After I graduated, I worked a couple of years with a larger firm that worked primarily for industry, but I always knew that I wanted to be on the green side of environmental law. So in 2008, I was approached by EcoJustice and I opened the Calgary office for EcoJustice. EcoJustice was formed about 1990, and I think its origins were in Vancouver. And primarily at that time, I believe it was opposing forestry development. So logging in the old growth forest was kind of its roots. But it grew out of that and uh, you know, became involved in other issues such as mining and species at risk, and then eventually into things like oil and gas development in Alberta, opened offices across the country. So we now have offices in Vancouver, Calgary, Ottawa, and Toronto, but we work in other provinces as well, uh, even outside of those. So it was started by, as I understand, a couple of individuals, a couple of lawyers who are interested in this kind of work and saw a need within British Columbia, and then it's kind of grown and expanded since then. We work in three main areas. We work on climate issues, wilderness and biodiversity protection, and healthy communities and the right to a healthy environment. The way we work on those things is mostly through litigation. So we try to take on cases that we think can make a big difference and have a big difference on the ground and set a legal precedent for a better environmental protection. To expand on that a bit, maybe some examples. So Climate Change and Energy Group works directly on climate change issues where we can, for example, uh, on law reform respect to you know greenhouse gas emissions, that sort of thing, but also represents groups who are concerned about major energy developments. So a lot of that, particularly in our Calgary office, becomes work on oil sands-related work, but we've done a lot of work on pipelines with clients concerned about the impacts of pipelines across the country. Within uh, wilderness and biodiversity, we've done a lot of species at risk work, making sure that the Species at Risk Act is properly interpreted and enforced. So that's been with respect to species such as killer whales on the West Coast, caribou in Alberta, sage-grouse in Alberta, and a number of other species. That group also looks at wilderness protection. So we've been involved over the years in a number of projects involved with national parks and development within national parks. And then healthy communities is about, I guess what it sounds, is individuals who are impacted by primarily industrial projects, so oil and gas refineries, other industrial plants that have the potential to impact people's health. How does the organization decide which cases to get involved in? When we're trying to decide which cases to take on, and it's difficult because there are so many potential cases that we could be working on, and demand always exceeds our capacity to take on new cases. 
the main focus of our analysis is what impact will this case have? So do we think that this case will set an important legal precedent and push the law in a direction that protects the environment? Do we think that it will have a big impact on the ground? And does it fit within those core priority areas that we've described? So often people approach us seeking help, and we also have a lot of longstanding client relationships with environmental organizations who we often work on with files and who might have a lot of expertise in a particular area. So for example, one of my clients is Raincoast Conservation Foundation, who are biologists who are really knowledgeable about what's going on on the West Coast. So we have a longstanding relationship with them and might brainstorm a case together where we see a need to address an environmental problem through the law. As each litigation case developed, as Dana said, either through, you know, it's been brought to us by a client or we've developed it over time because of a client's particular expertise or concern. But once we have identified the litigation case, then it goes to one of those three teams, three priority areas we've described where the lawyers evaluate the case and decide whether it's worth proceeding with. And then there's a final test. We have a litigation committee of our board who is kind of the final test of whether it's a case we should proceed with or not. Tell me about some of the cases and issues that you personally have been involved in. Since I started as an articling student in the Vancouver office after law school and continuing here in the Calgary office, I've largely been working on pipeline files. So on the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Project, I represented our clients with other eco-justice lawyers in the National Energy Board review of the project. And we're now in litigation about the outcome of that review, so challenging the National Energy Board's report, which recommended in favor of the pipeline. And my other main file, another pipeline file, is the Energy East Project. And we've been representing a client in the hearing, which is now on hold because of a motion that we brought and a motion that another group brought based on some journalism that revealed secret meetings that the board had been having with someone who was a consultant for TransCanada at the time. So two different pipeline files that I'm working on in different stages of progress. My work overlaps somewhat with Dina's in the pipeline area. I represented three environmental groups at the hearings into the Northern Gateway Pipeline, which lasted about a year and a half in total, and then subsequently represented those same groups in what's called a judicial review, which is a kind of an appeal to the court with respect to the decision that was made on that pipeline. And I continue to represent those groups with some potential further legal actions on pipelines. So a lot of our work is pipeline uh, oil sands related. And on a more basic level, it goes back to what's the right level of development in the oil sands? And should we be locking into infrastructure such as pipelines and new mine developments when the world appears to be going in a different direction towards you know, a much lower carbon future? So that's kind of the baseline for that work. So I've done over the years other oil sands-related work with respect to tailings, with respect to water use, and that sort of thing. So it's really about it's really about two things for the pipelines and the oil sands. It's about the immediate impacts, which are impacts on wildlife, impacts on water quality, impacts on air quality, the potential impacts of, say, a spill in the marine environment. So it's addressing those issues, but it's also trying to address the bigger issue, as I said, of are we moving in the right direction with oil sands development when the world is going in a different direction. So that's kind of the oil sands-related work. I've done a lot of work over the last few years also on another oil and gas-related issue, which is an issue of inactive wells, oil and gas wells in Alberta. 
These are oil and gas wells that have not been producing for you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 to 30, as much as 40 or 50 years, and yet they've never been decommissioned and cleaned up, which has an impact on the environment and impact on farmers who want to use their land. So I've done a lot of work on that over the years. My earlier work with EcoJustice was a lot related to water use and water licensing and who got water and who didn't, but that work has not been as much in the forefront in the last couple of years. So maybe with reference to a specific example, sketch out for listeners more about the character and everyday experience of the work that you do in these cases. I'll use the Trans Mountain file as an example because it is a bit more varied. So we started when the National Energy Board review of the project started, we talked to our clients, decided to take on this case because they had a number of important concerns to raise. Our client, Raincoast Conservation Foundation, was focused on marine impacts and Fraser River impacts, and in particular, the southern resident killer whales and the impacts of tankers on them and the Fraser River salmon and the impact of potential spill from the pipeline on them. And our client, Living Ocean Society, was concerned about the impacts of marine spills and also about air quality and other human health impacts of the pipeline and facilities. So once we took on that file, we went through the stages of the National Energy Board review, and the most significant part of that was gathering our clients' evidence. So working with experts to prepare reports that we would present to the National Energy Board that address all of these issues, and then eventually making final arguments to the board based on all of this evidence about why the project shouldn't go ahead. Eventually, the National Energy Board report came out, and we reviewed it really carefully with our clients. And at that stage, we began a new litigation project where we identified a flaw in the report and then took that report to court on the basis that the board didn't properly address requirements of the Species at Risk Act with reference to the Southern Resident Killer Whales. So having first done the NEB review, we then determined that this problem with it merited another legal case. And what that involved is so you start a litigation file by setting out in a document for the court just the bare bones of the relevant facts and law. So the facts and your main legal arguments, and then you go through the various stages of the litigation, which again involves providing the court with your evidence and ultimately building up to written and oral arguments, which is where we're at now. And along the way, working with our clients just to make sure that they're informed of everything that's going on. A lot of my work parallels what Dina's just described. For example, in the Northern Gateway Pipeline, it was starting off with clients who were concerned. All my clients were based in BC and two of them based on the coast. And they were concerned about the impact that a pipeline to the coast and the marine shipping that would happen after that, the potential impacts of that on coastal BC, on food chains, on wildlife. So the first step was to understand their concerns and then talk about the potential tools you could use to address those concerns. And in that case, as was Dina's case with Kinder Morgan, Trans Mountain, there was a hearing, a hearing in front of the National Energy Board. So our role as lawyers is to understand you know, our clients' evidence of what the risks are associated with those projects and to present their evidence to the board that you're in front of, like in that case, National Energy Board, but we also appear in front of the Alberta Energy Regulator, and we've appeared at other review panels under the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act. So you work to present your client's evidence, what the risks are. You cross-examine the proponent's evidence on how they intend to mitigate the risks. 
And then you make closing arguments. And along the way, you do a lot of legal research and a lot of legal writing to try and present that case. And then, as Dina has pointed out, if after the tribunal or board you're appearing in has made a decision, it appears they've made some kind of legal error, then you consider, should this be something that's taken to a higher level of court? But the work day-to-day, it's a lot of contact with particularly client groups. As Dina said, we work primarily with environmental groups rather than individuals. So it's a lot of meeting with them and discussing their concerns and discussing what they can bring to the table. We do work with individual clients from time to time, and I find that really rewarding when you actually have a client who's, you know, a person whose land or life or livelihood's been impacted and trying to assist them. We also do law reform work, which is where we think the current laws are not strong enough or do not address the real issues. For example, this fall, we'll be addressing expert panels that have been set up to discuss reforming the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act and the National Energy Board Act to try and strengthen environmental protections in those. I'm also currently sitting on a committee established by the Alberta Energy Regulator that is looking at developing regulations to reduce methane releases from the oil and gas industry. So we also do that kind of law reform work as well. Tell me more about the communication that happens between the lawyers and the clients. And I mean that in particular because, on the one hand, your work as legal work is highly specialized, and I'd imagine at least some of the clients are also coming from a place of highly specialized, often scientific knowledge. So how do you make sure that everybody has a a solid understanding of what's going on in order to make the best possible decision given the circumstances? I was just joking with one of the representatives from one of my client groups the other day that he's becoming an amateur lawyer and I'm becoming an amateur marine biologist. A lot of our clients are either officially or unofficially experts in their field. For example, this client is a biologist. Other clients have been working on marine issues for so long that despite not having formal qualifications, they just have immense amounts of knowledge about these issues. So we learn a lot from them. And I guess we both, on both sides, make efforts to explain things to each other in plain terms. So I've learned a great deal about killer whales, for example, on my Kinder Morgan file. And in the process, my clients help translate the evidence that we're working with for me, and I help translate the law to them and explain all of the steps in the litigation in plain language. We tend to work with the same clients on multiple files, too. So you develop a good client relationship. They understand you. We understand them. And we're able, as Dina said, to talk in language that we understand each other and what their objectives are, and they understand somewhat the tools we can use. should also mention, we also have two in-house scientists who contribute a lot to our cases. They're able to bridge that gap between science and law because they've worked in the organization for many years, and they often are very important in our work in identifying risks and developing cases. Tell me more about the law reform work that the organization is engaged in. A lot of this arises out of changes that were made to the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act and the National Energy Board Act in 2012. You may recall this was a time when the Harper government passed omnibus budget bills, huge bills, but buried within those bills were changes to a number of environmental acts. For example, under the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act, there was changes that limited the time for hearing, so the timelines were shortened. And that had an adverse effect in that it, in many cases, meant there would be no oral cross-examination of a company's evidence. It tightened up who could appear before a review panel 
It moves the decision-making from the sort of arm blanks National Energy Board or Ministry of Environment to the federal cabinet. So there was a number of changes made that, in our opinion, weakened the effectiveness of the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act. The purpose of that act is to identify potential environmental impacts early in the stages of designing a project and to then come up with mitigation measures to lessen those impacts. And it was pretty clear in 2012, the objective was just to try and make the process go as quickly as possible to try and get some pipelines approved. But in the process, it really undermined the strength of that act. The new government has recognized that, and as I said, they have now appointed an expert panel to look at environmental assessment. And, you know, it looks like they'll go broader than just fixing the things that were broken in 2012, but look more broadly at what does a really effective modern environmental assessment act look like? And does it include things such as, you know, the downstream use of the product, for example, oil being burned in China that was mined in Canada? So it's a good opportunity to come up with a really modern, effective, strong Environmental Assessment Act, and we expect that soon there'll be a similar panel announced for the National Energy Board Act. What other kinds of environmental law reforms are perhaps not currently in process, but you think might be useful? Our environmental health team does a lot of work around pesticides and the way that pesticides are regulated in Canada, and that's an area where there's a great need They've also been working towards a ban on microbeads, tiny, tiny pieces of plastic that create a huge problem for marine environments. So there's a lot of room for better regulation of harmful substances of all kinds in Canada. An area I work in, as I mentioned earlier, the inactive oil and gas wells and the ability to be able to clean up and reclaim those sites. There was a legal case that came out in December of last year, which showed really that the Alberta Energy Regulator did not hold enough security. So when a company goes bankrupt and walks away from an oil or gas well, who's left to clean that up? So there's a real need for law reform in that area in terms of the security that the Alberta Energy Regulator should be holding in case a company goes bankrupt or disappears. And there should be timelines on cleaning up inactive wells. It's an area that I've been fighting on law reform for about eight years now, but unfortunately not too successfully. Given that lots of the issues that EcoJustice has been involved in have both an environmental protection dimension and an Indigenous sovereignty dimension, has EcoJustice ever been involved in the Indigenous sovereignty side of things in, say, a pipeline case? We have not directly represented a First Nations or Indigenous group in oil sands or pipeline-related work, although when we've been representing environmental groups, other lawyers have been representing First Nations, and there's been a lot of cooperation between those groups. And I just used the example of the Northern Gateway pipeline hearings. There was a lot of cooperation discussion between both environmental groups and First Nations and their lawyers about who was going to cover what issue, just for efficiency of the panel. When that matter went to the Federal Court of Appeal, six First Nations brought challenges, and we brought a challenge on behalf of our three environmental group clients. Another lawyer brought a challenge on behalf of his environmental group client. And there was also a challenge brought by a a large union. The court eventually amalgamated all of those challenges into one hearing. So there was a lot of cooperation, again, between the lawyers for the various parties, just for the efficiency of the hearing. So I think I'd say, although we haven't directly represented a First Nation on an oil sands or a pipeline file, 
we definitely are well aware of the kind of issues and, and actually the environmental groups issues and the First Nations issues actually are very much overlap and are aligned. For example, you know, not wanting to have an oil spill off the west coast of British Columbia that would damage traditional harvesting areas. How is EcoJustice funded? In terms of how we fundraise, we fundraise in order to take on cases for free because our clients normally wouldn't be able to afford lawyers, especially to take on the kinds of complex cases that we do. So we have a great fundraising team and the majority of our funds come from just donations from individual Canadians and the remainder, I think, come from grants from foundations that we apply for. We are always very clear. We always say here, the work drives the fundraising, not the other way around. As we've described, our lawyers and scientists in discussion with our clients decide which legal cases are priorities and which legal cases are important. And then our amazing fundraising group is able to present the work that we're working on. And and there's both individual and organizational funders who like that work and donate. We are very clear that the fundraising does not drive the work. For example, someone couldn't walk into us and say, hey, I'll give you $50,000 if you'll litigate this. That's not how we work. We determine our priorities based on the importance of the legal work and the importance of the environmental problem, not on what funding might be available. What would you tell environmentalists and other people concerned about defending the earth about what the law can accomplish as a tool in doing that and what we shouldn't expect the law to be able to do? I think the law provides an important tool as sort of a backstop when there perhaps isn't the will to make a decision that's good for the environment because in some but not all cases, there are mandatory bare minimum legal requirements that have to be met so we can ensure that decisions are at least living up to those legal standards when otherwise there isn't a will to make those decisions that are good for the environment. I always say to people that legal action and legal intervention is in some ways kind of a limited toolbox. You need to have a law that can be enforced, so you need that legal hook in order for us to be involved. So oftentimes, it becomes two-pronged. There's a legal hook, and we can do it. Sometimes there isn't a legal hook. You know, person says, well, you know, there should be a law against that, and we might say, yes, we agree there should be a law against that. That becomes more a political question. So you know, often environmental groups or individuals, sometimes the best action they can take is just to be in contact with the Minister of Environment in their province or the Federal Minister of Environment or their local member of parliament and express their concerns about an environmental matter. And that's outside of the realm that we do. We don't do any political work, but sometimes that's a route that people who are interested in environmental protection should be taking. You have been listening to my interview with Dina Teutel and Barry Robinson. They're both staff lawyers with EcoJustice, a national organization that uses litigation and law reform work to protect and improve the environment. To learn more about their work, go to ecojustice.ca. That's ecojustice.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Your footprints, footprints filled.